and what we really wanted to do was like blend up the um locust into the batter like that would have made a lot more sense they would have like you know it would have been more secret but that we would have known that so we couldn't do that so we ended up just laying them in the pan and then putting the batter well their legs like the, in the oven began like having like spasms and everything and then so when the cake came out it was just this it looked like this like great you know those graveyard scenes with like the bodies coming out of the the ground <laughs> This is Cumin. This is Caleb. Welcome to Life Unwasted, a podcast where we look into our past to discover our present. So I was talking with one of our guests from last season, uh, Adam, and we were catching up and he said, um, so I just had an interview with someone who was writing a, a book about missionary kids and Hey, we do a podcast about missionary kids. Kimen and I uh, grew up in the Philippines. Uh, we were missionary kids over there and we've been interviewing um, uh, missionary kids around from around the world, uh, kind of processing some memories, um, uh, looking at what things mean now. And so I said, Adam, you know, how did you connect with this MK? And he said, oh, Twitter. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. So I, I looked uh, this person up on Twitter. She happens to be writing a book about MK or was doing some research for a book about MKs. I hope it's okay if I share that. Um, sure. And, uh, we, you know, we, we, we did an interview and I thought, well, you know, it'd be, it would be great to have her on the show. So Holly, um, I don't know if you can go ahead and introduce yourself, maybe talk about where you grew up as an MK and um, uh, yeah, give us a little bit of background. Yeah, so I'm Holly Fletcher, Holly Berkeley uh, Fletcher is my maiden name. Um, and I am an MK from Kenya. I grew up almost my whole childhood till I graduated high school. I went to Rift Valley Academy, maybe some of your other guests. Um, have been to RVA. It's one of it's. I think it's the It and Faith Academy are I think the largest mission boarding schools in the world. Um, and um, so yeah, that was a long time ago. I won't tell you what year I graduated, um, but uh, it was a long time ago. <laughs> and I had to stop myself from singing with along to Toto there because that that song is. Um, Pretty special to the RVA grads um, because uh, it's actually been sung at graduations by the choir now for quite a number of years. Um, and it has kind of a special meaning for a lot of us, even though I think Toto, I'm, I'm going to say they probably have never been to Africa. I'm guessing it's not the way they say Kilimanjaro is wrong. There's a lot of things wrong with the song, but it's still kind of special to us. <laughs> there's an energy to that song it reminds me of uh john denver um country road take me home west virginia right yeah there's i think they capture a sense of like yearning do you know yeah yeah and um i think that's a big part of mk life actually you know I think the I, it's funny, I didn't plan on talking about the deep meaning of Toto's Africa, but since we're here, um, 
I think the line for me that really um, strikes me every time is, um, um, I, I seek to cure what's deep inside, frightened of this thing that I've become. And I think that um, for a long time, it's getting a little bit better as I'm getting older. I'm, like I said, I'm, it's far removed my MK childhood. But uh, for a long time, I just, um, I had this panic as I became more American that I was losing a big part of myself um, by becoming more assimilated and more sort of comfortable as an American. Um, and that was kind of a identity that we had, you know, I'd grown up sort of deriding, you know, um, those, you know, shallow materialistic Americans, you know, it, it kind of scared me. Um, and, and I felt like I was kind of like to grab onto one identity, I was kind of going to have to let go of another. And so it was, it was really frightening. So that, that line always strikes me. Um, but the song, um, I don't know, captures some sort of yearning of something you can't have and you can't keep and maybe a place that you don't really belong. Um, so anyway, I don't know yeah. how they meant it, but that's how kind of how I take it. <laughs> yeah. The line though is frightened of this thing I've become. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? And so does that, re- I, does that resonate with you at all? I, I think so because it's not that I don't like this thing I've become. It's that maybe I don't know how to be this thing I've become and I'm frightened of it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like at the beginning when I was first, you know, in the U S I didn't like, you know, I certainly didn't, I didn't want to be an American. Like, you know, if someone, someone calling me, you know, Oh, like if I'd see an old friend and they would say something like, Oh, you're, you've become so American. That would just be the worst insult, you know? Um, now it's, I'm just, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with it now. Um, but it's funny because growing up in Kenya, it was almost the opposite. You know, when, when I was growing up there, I was so proud to be American, you know, and we would have, um, I remember, um, the, at RVA, they would have like, um, multicultural day or whatever. Oh no, that's sorry. I'm, I'm alighting my memory with my nephew's go to RBAs now. So I'm aligning some of the present with the past. There was a multicultural day on 4th of July. That's what it was. Oh. We would, the Americans, which was, you know, the majority of the school, we would like, you know, wear our red, white, and blue. And we always got in like fights with the Canadians about who was better. And, and I would like have vigorous arguments with the Canadians that, you know, the, how the U.S. is better now I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would argue with them about that anymore. <laughs> but anyway, back then, you know, or like I remember we would have um, at home when I was at be at home when I was younger before I went to boarding school and I'd be at home on Fourth of July. We would have um, British friends, you know, British. My parents had British friends, quite a few. There's a lot of British people in Kenya or um, British Kenyans, you know, from the post in the colonial days holdover and my parents would like we'd have them over for the july and like sort of torment them (laughs) and it was like this whole you know i was i was pretty patriotic but then when you come here then it's like oh 
I just, I don't want to be, I don't want to be just a regular American, you know, like you just don't want to blend in like that. You know, actually, if I can riff a bit more on this topic. So I listened to the episode with, I think it was Pammy, was it her uh-huh. name yeah. on the, the finale of last season? Yeah. And yeah. she, a lot of what she was talking about really resonated with me, this tension of like, wanting to fit in but wanting to be special but being uncomfortable with that and that just so resonated with me that was kind of like always you wanted to belong but you wanted I I don't think it was being special per se as just you wanted if you blended in too much like it was it you know people were not seeing part of who you were you know I don't think it was an egoism I think it was just a a extension of belonging you know that that you wouldn't quite be the same that there would be some recognition of that but not too much um so that really resonated with me um, from that episode. that's a that's a theme that came up especially a lot in season one and season two is this longing not necessarily to be the center of attention but to be fully seen for who we are right yeah yeah Yes, it's a different, it is a different thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you're sort of um, the center of attention, but in a way, but in a superficial way, in a way that's not authentic or not, that's sort of skin deep, then that's, that's very uncomfortable. Like if it, it's like the difference between like, for instance, um, when I married, you know, when I got married to my husband, obviously as a at your wedding, you're the center of attention, but it's all these people who know you and love you, right? On a deep level. And so then it's joy, right? But when you're the center of attention and it's so it's on a superficial thing, it's just so uncomfortable. I think, I think that's it. Yeah. Being, I, being on display is something that is a, a very much a trigger for me. And I think oh, in, yeah. in a lot of contexts, we were on display. Um, yes. Yeah, it was part of our job. Yeah. Holly, yeah. we have already established and you know, everything you have said so far, even the type of you know school that you went to um is so relatable, I think, to anyone who's already been listening to this podcast, anyone who went, yeah. you know, to to Faith Academy or or you know, CAJ in Japan or um yeah. myriad of other schools. So I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of background on you though. Um, you know, what was your family situation? What was going over there like? When, you know, where and when were you? Just kind of give us the a, a little bit of background on on your missionary kid experience. Yeah. So my dad was in the army um, before, and they had kids kind of late. So he retired from the army when I was like seven, and he had already been in the army twenty years by that point. So he he was kind of in a different position as a missionary because he had a pension and then they were Southern Baptist missionaries. So they got a salary, you know, Southern Baptists are the quote rich missionaries, which is not true, obviously, but they're more financially secure, you know, you get like a, so we were compared to the other missionaries. um, We were, you know, I think very financially secure, not rich, of course, but financially Mm -hmm. secure. But anyway, so he retired from the military. And then so we, we got to Kenya when I was eight. Mm. And um, I don't, you know, for me, adjusting there was pretty seamless, except I do remember like my, 
all the training they had to go through ahead of time. They went to seminary, they went to orientation. Anyway, I went to like um, three or four different school. I had, or I went to three different schools in second grade. And, but I, even within that, like they put me in different. So I went, I had four different home teachers, maybe even five, because I think in the last school, they've even changed me, my class after I got there. So it was just, it was a lot of like, we moved from one place to the other. So, and then when we got to Kenya, we were in language school for a while. And so it, it was basically a whole year and a half of transition. And that was unsettling. Um, I didn't, it, that was really upsetting. Um, but then once we were sort of settled, you know, actually moving to a different country in a very, very different country, that, it, that wasn't so bad. Like I really loved the place um, all, almost right away. Like it was just had a magic about it. It was so beautiful and colorful and um there was just a magic about it from the beginning. I just, I, I fell in love pretty quickly and I'm still in love. (laughs) It is just the most amazing country. It's just beautiful. The people are um, so welcoming and warm and funny. There's a lot of humor in the culture that I really love. And, um, yeah, and I go back as often as I can. So, and which is thankfully fairly often. So, um, so it wasn't the so the that adjustment, the cultural adjustment was pretty was not too bad, but it was just all the tumult and the moving and moving. And then I went to a Kenyan primary school for about a year and a half, which was a good, ex- pretty good experience. But my sister went to RVA because my school didn't um, go up to her grade, so she went to RVA and she was like kind of my best friend, you know? And so when she went to RVA, I sort of quickly thought, you know, I need to, I need to go to RVA. So even though I could have kept going to this school where I was, which is a perfectly fine school, um, my parents decided it was a great idea to, you know, let me go to RVA when I was 10, which was way too young. I was just, some 10 year olds might be fine, but for me, I was way too young. And, um, and that, so then that was very traumatic. That was a traumatic year, um, my first year there. Um, and I didn't realize that it was traumatic for a long time because I really, um, RVA became my home and my family. I really emotionally separated from my parents and attached to that place and that um, the community. And so in my memory, especially after I had graduated from high school and had was grieving the loss, everything about like RVA was just good, you know, and there was no kind of nuance. And I sort of edited out anything bad. And it wasn't until really the last, since I had my kids, my kids, you know, 15 and 12, after I had my kids, then it started, I started to process some of that. Um, and Could you realize, tell us, give, yeah. give the listeners a bit of background of, of what RVA is? Where yeah, RVA and like what is. that, what was your living situation? Yeah, mm-hmm. like, like give us, like paint a picture uh, for us in your mind. Cause yeah. I'm, 
Yeah. What was that like when you so, were, you were so 10? So you when guys you went, went to faith. Yeah. yeah. So you guys went to faith. So there are some similarities with faith. Um, they're both mission run, um, very evangelical boarding schools. But the difference, there's some key differences. And one of them is faith is in a city um, and is sort of part of a larger, um, you know, city mm-hmm. um, community, I suppose. RVA is really isolated. Um, it's um, basically was a mission station. It's a, it's only about an hour from Nairobi, but it feels very isolated. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's just breathtaking. It's on the escarpment of the Rift Valley. And so, um, and it's a self-contained like community. Now, since the embassy bombings in 98, it, it has a huge security fence around it. So it literally is this contained, like almost fortress now, which is unfortunate. Um, Back then it was, you could, you know, you can still go outside the fence and go hiking in the forest and stuff like that. But it's pretty, it feels very isolated. Um, It's this, oh, it's a real bubble in every sense of the word, you know? and then, so then we lived, I know you guys had like the different missions had dorms and some people were, there was a lot of day students. RVA is almost all boarding. Um, and then back then it was grades one through 12, like first oh people goodness. would send their first graders, which is just like, I had friends that started as boarders in the first grade, which I think is unconscionable they they try not they don't really like they discourage taking kids that young most of the kids in the lower grades these days are the teacher's kids you know this we call them the station kids um but um back in my day like that was very common and um people still go pretty young like 10 is certainly not unheard of still Mm. um and then, so most people are boarders. The station kids are the minority. And so you're living in dorms and with, you have dorm, but dorms of like 20 kids and the dorm parents, you know, even the best intentions and the best ones of them, you're not going to parent 20 kids. Nobody can do that. Um, and so the, my friends really became my family. And, you know, I had some teachers who I developed closer relationships with, but again, you're not, it's not a real, it's not the type of relationship you would have with a parent. Um, And so you are, you're, it's a very peer oriented group. And of course your peers aren't, they're struggling with their own stuff and they're not really um, equipped to parent you either. I think we tried, I look back now and have a lot of memories of where me and my friends, you know, really tried to sort of parent each other, but we weren't equipped to do that. And so there is a lot of emotional, you know, self-reliance and um, just strong attachment to your friends um, and just sort of bonded together, trying to, you know, get through this thing called uh, adolescence and, growing up and all and all of that and um yeah some of those friends are still my very very good friends they're like you know some of them are like family you know I'm, I'm closer than them certainly than with my own family which I wouldn't say I have a close emotional 
um, relationship with uh, my my actual family, um, my parents in particular. So, um, so yeah, yeah, that's a little bit about RVA. Um, How big I've explained is it well. It's student. hard to explain it. It's just so much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. What's the size? Yeah, good. Okay. Yeah. Good question. So it's about 500 grades one through 12. So my, um, mm. my graduating class was like 87 and that's still true mm. these days. It's about the same. It hasn't grown yeah. much in size over the years. Pretty, pretty similar yeah. to faith. Faith is like mm -hmm. six, 700, or at least when we were there. Yeah. yeah. Is it Rift Valley Academy then? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So, and it is, it's just, it's still the most beautiful place. That's what I miss most of all, um, which I still, when I go to back to Kenya, I always try to stop it. Cause I just, I don't know. I just need to see that it's still there somehow. Well, um, country, country road, take me home, right? That was your home. You said, you mentioned it, a second ago, I was there, yeah, I was not there as close with your years. family. You weren't as close yeah. with your family. And so, yeah it makes sense to me now that that Toto song being so um, such an anthem for RVA kids, because it is, yeah. it was, it is your home. It is a, a piece of earth that you feel very connected to. It is. And, and that's true. Even now as I've so like religiously and spiritually, I I'm very um, far afield from the faith that I was raised. And frankly, even when I was there, I never really fit, if I was honest with myself, which I tried not to be, I never really fit with the evangelical, you know, version of Christianity. I never had this sort of, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend, emotional connection to like a personal thing. You know what I'm saying? Um, that just never, that always felt false to me. It felt forced. And I never really had that feeling that everybody else around me seemed to have. So even when I was there, I didn't, you know, but outwardly I fit very much in and I tried very hard to fit in. And now I've, you know, I've kind of, um, I'm not in that um, culture at all. Um, but even so, I still have this, like, I, I just want to go, I just want to see it again. I just want to see that it's still there. Yeah. It's like a piece of land. I, you know, honestly, I tell my husband that, you know, I want to be, um, cremated and I want my ashes scattered there because I just still feel that strong connection and it's so beautiful the thing that's what I miss so much about it is it's on the edge of the rift valley and you know on the escarpment and it just drops off into like this expanse there's a big volcano and the floor of the rift valley and we used to watch the sunset you know pretty much as I think I tried to watch it every evening because I just loved it so much. We would watch the sunset and then we'd go in for the night. Um, and um, yeah, I just miss the beauty of it. You know, to me, that was like God to me. That was like what, that's how I experienced God was like the, the, those watching those sunsets, you know? Holly, if you don't mind me asking, you did mention editing your life as we collect it. You do, you do mention the beauty and how beautiful it was, how breathtaking it was, but I'm noticing that it was all nature. It's all external. Yeah. Could you share with us those parts that you have chosen to edit out for 
so long yeah i mean now i'm starting to recollect and you're starting to bring back what are those areas yeah yeah i mean so not just sorry i've i've been i've been wrestling with it for probably over 10 years now when my kids were born that would seem to trigger something in me and i began to realize that um part you know my upbringing was like i wouldn't want that i wouldn't want them to have I want them to have things differently than what I had. And so I started sort of processing all that. Yeah. You know, I remember really the first, the first year was horrible. Um, I didn't, again, I didn't have the emotional maturity to live with that many kids and to, um, to have no refuge from them. Do you know, like I think kids normally they go to school they may have some conflict with their friends. It may be, you know, uncomfortable. There may be a little bullying, but then they go home to their, hopefully, I mean, I, this is ideally, you know, they go home to their warm, safe home where they feel safe, emotionally safe and can sort of rest and process and talk with their parents and so on. And when you're at a boarding school at a young age, you just, you don't have that home base and you don't have that refuge. And so I just remember just in being in fight or flight mode for much of that whole year. Um, you know, I, um, I tried to like, I tried to fake being sick so I could get into the infirmary and have some like solitude just to get away from the other kids. And there wasn't like serious, but, but there was like, you know, I was just, I didn't have any real friends frankly, I was, I kind of was a little obnoxious again, because I think children are inherently selfish and you have to learn not to be unselfish. So the way I would behave sometimes would be kind of like people would borrow my stuff and I would get, I wouldn't be chill about it. I would, you know, I'd get kind of upset about it. And then people would, you know, so I had, I just didn't, I didn't connect with people. I didn't have any real friends that year. I was bullied some, you know, a girl, uh, a group of girls would, you know, they were kind of the tough girls. It's funny because one of them, you know, ended up becoming a good friend and I'm still in touch with her now, but um, they were kind of the tough girls. They would throw rocks at me and like tease me and the boys would like tease me. And I was also kind of somehow, you know, was known as kind of the smart kid, which was not good to be. And so that, and I didn't, again, I wasn't mature enough to learn how to like, you got to be on the down low with that. You can't just be out there being the smart kid. That's just not going to be good for you. Um, and so, you know, I would get teased a lot and, and um, yeah, so I just remember just feeling very traumatized and just, um, uh, just off balance, you know, that feeling when that kind of fight or flight where you just feel like, eh, something's not right. And I remember just having that all the time or much of the time that first year. Um, Holly, have you, then, have you yeah. had a talk with your sister? You mentioned that yeah. was the principal reason you went to RVA was because your sister was there and she was yeah, your best friend. Yeah. So you followed so that her. Was, yeah, that was one of the big disappointments too, which I can't blame her for. Um, she was also just trying to get by. But yeah, I had in my mind when I wanted to go and I asked my parents if I could go, I had this vision in my mind of that we would be together, you know, even though I knew it was, she was, she was in 
eighth grade, I was, I was in the elementary school and she was in the secondary, you know, in the upper school. And that was the elementary school was like a whole different area of the school. So I knew I was like, not obviously going to be in her dorm or whatever, but I didn't, I don't think I quite realized that I would be in really a whole different area of the school. And, and then I really didn't realize that she really wasn't going to have time and energy to deal with me. So the times I would try to go down to her dorm, which I, and I can't remember exactly. That's one of those things I can't remember. I think we weren't really supposed to leave the elementary school area. Just, I think we were not like, but to, I, anyway, to see, your, I, to see your sister. I mean, she's your sister. Well, like you could, but like with permission, but I think oh. they wanted us to kind of stay in the, that part of the school. Other mm. people's siblings would come see them and she never did at least in my memory she never did and so but one time I distinctly remember going down to her dorm I don't know if it was permitted or not or if I just sort of snuck away and I went and I found her in her room and she basically told me to go away like I was bothering her I was embarrassing her you know now Holly oh I'm sorry I just a minute ago you said that your sister would have to deal with you like you were a burden. And I've heard you talk about yourself, your image of yourself back then several times as a burden, but like you're a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but um, I was normal kid. Right. But I, what I mean is like all the kids. So here's the thing in these schools, like I don't blame, I can't blame my sister. She was struggling. Like all these kids kids. were struggling. Right. We're all kids. None of us have the emotional um, maturity and the skills, the emotional skills to really live in this setting, you know? And like, I know for a fact, my sister, this is why I don't, I don't, I don't bear any sort of grudge at all. You know, I have a lot of compassion um, for my sister at that age because she really struggled throughout her years at RVA. She went older than me, but her experience overall um, taken as a whole was not nearly as positive as mine. Like I ended up, you know, quickly kind of, I don't know, just luck or whatever, but I ended up sort of developing, you know, I sort of learned like, okay, this is how you do the, this is how you sort of make friends in the setting and, and kind of be, you know, a person that does well in the setting. Um, And I ended up, you know, thriving by the time I graduated high school, I was so attached that leaving was just devastating. Um, but she never really thrived there. It was always kind of difficult for her. And in fact, I have a distinct memory of before I had gone. Um, this is like one of the more vivid memories I have um, um, of her in at, at RVA was I hadn't gone yet, but, and, but she was there. It was her first year and we, she was in seventh grade and we dropped her at her dorm on arrival day. And she was crying. Uh, This was like her second term or whatever. She was crying and she didn't, you know, she was really struggling and she was crying and she didn't want to be there. And anyway, I, I forget what she said, but what I remember is, um, driving away and we had a station wagon and looking out the back window of the station wagon, 
and through the dusty dust of the road and she was like running after our car and crying oh my god um and that like as a mother now like that kills me you know yeah. i actually i haven't even talked to her about this frankly so i don't even know you know your memory is so weird i don't even know i'm pretty sure that memory is accurate because it's so and i don't know where i would have gotten it but i don't know if she even remembers that do you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. but i mm. remember that and and as a kid i remember i don't i don't remember what i was feeling at that moment i just it registered in my brain but as an adult and as a mother i think about that and i just like it just rips my heart out mm-hmm. so i don't really i have nothing but compassion for my sister as a child even though she wasn't able to be there for me at that time she's been there for me other times in my yeah. life um but but i'm not you know i have nothing but i know why she wasn't able to because she was trying to take care of herself mm-hmm. so mm. yeah yeah tough uh, there is so much and then Holly. She, so she's a missionary now and she her yeah. boys are at rva well one of them gra- has graduated oh. now and then her younger ones is the rva they went older though you know they mm-hmm. went a little older and um i won't i don't feel at liberty to go in. i don't no not, no 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 no, um, no, no. speak about them but it's yeah. just interesting didn't have a good experience there but her she's still you know, all things considered and all the choices that, that they had on the table, you know, she still uh, wanted to send the boys there. So I think she still, even with as difficult it was, she still has had an emotional attachment to it as well. So it's complicated, right? Everything is complicated. Um, I think, you know, too often, certainly in evangelical culture, things have to be good or bad. Like, and it's, that's just not how most things are, you know? Yeah. So let's hold those two things that you've said in our, in our mind and pull them into the present at the same time. You know, you, you spent quite a a bit of time, you know, really trying to express how important that, um, you know, to the point where you would want your, um, ashes to be spread on the grounds of this school. Um, but also yeah. you are now as a parent unpacking the trauma and, and this, this is like being, you know, almost, it sounds almost foster care esque trauma, <laughs> pull those two things into the present. How do you feel about having those two things kind of in your hand at the same time? Well, I, I think kind of what happened and um, there's no, I mean, there's no doubt. I, again, the relationship, my relationship with the place and the experience is is complicated as is people's relationship with their families, right? I mean, my relationship with my, my parents is complicated. My relationship with most, I mean, relationships are kind of complicated. Um, and you can... You know, it's like I've, um, and this is this is not an apt comparison because I think it's too extreme. But you know, I've known people who have had abusive parents, and then when they pass away, they're deep, deep in grief, and they'll even talk very fondly about the parent. You know what I'm saying? Like 
it's kind of weird that way right so i think it's just as children like you attach you know that's kind of the nature of things and and i did and i had a lot of wonderful times there and the and um what's a a really solid uh, rva memory that's i don't know like something that every rva uh grad would know about or i don't oh know oh my gosh yeah. i well i have just epic epic yeah. stories i don't know this is not a typical one but my favorite one my favorite story which i feel like is like the epic boarding school story was um when i was in ninth grade um me and my roommates and that was a fun that was a really fun year i roomed with these two girls rachel and pam and we just were like the craziest funnest trio we got just a little minor just minor trouble nothing no big deal but just you know um oh we got to trouble one time there was a toilet paper shortage which was a thing that happened in kenya during the, at that time different commodities we would run out i was so prepared for covid let me tell you because i have lived through paper toilet paper shortages <laughs> and so like one time we got in trouble for sneaking into the dorm parents apartment and like stealing extra rolls of toilet paper so that's just an example of the antics but anyway um one of the antics one of the things that they got into was um they we got into this long running sort of back and forth prank battle with one of the boys dorm or some of the boys in one of the dorms in our class and it was kind of back and forth they did you know went into their broken when they were out at an activity we went into their um dorm and like you know, tied all their shoes together and like squeeze out toothpaste all over the thing. So it was like things like that back and forth. Well, um, so it was third term, which is like rainy season and the locusts come out. It's like locust season. There's like not swarms, but you know, there's a high population of locusts and you know, those big grasshoppers and I hated those. Oh my gosh. I hate, I'm not a bug. I'm not afraid of bugs, but I hate those. They're gross. They're big and gross and they hop and fly and it's I don't like it um and anyway so we were out we we went to one of the in the weekends they would have like movies for us or they would have some planned activities so we came back from one of those activities and we came into a room and so we saw like oh there's a locust ew we got to get it out then we started looking around and our room was infested with locusts The boys had collected locusts for probably a week and had come into our room while we were out and had put them in everything. They, (laughs) in our beds, it was indeterminate. We had started packing. They put them in our packed (laughs) suitcases. They put them in our pillowcases. They put them in our, like a few days later after they had all been removed, my Pam got, like a sweater out to put on and they were inside her sweater. Oh my God. Oh, we had, Ooh. they went into like our, they put them in like the, our boxes of tampons. They left no <laughs> corner unlocust. And it, and I, I hate those things. So I admit that I was no help in cleaning it up because I was so terrified of those things. Um, but like the girls in the dorm that weren't afraid of them, you know, clean they everybody helped clean our room up the people that weren't afraid of locusts which is not me and they were like sweeping just pot these piles of locusts like out the back door of the dorm and um 
anyway, and it was just like this epic thing. And so then we decided to get them back. We decided oh. we were gonna make a cake and put the locust in the cake. Wow. Which we did. But the thing is, is we didn't, we had to like do it surreptitiously because we had to make the cake in our dorm mother's kitchen because we didn't really have, you know, you had to, you didn't really have our own kitchen. So, um, so we're in her kitchen and we, so we were trying to do this like on the down low um, and put these locusts in the cake. And what we really wanted to do was like blend up the um, locusts into the batter. Like that would have made a lot more sense. They would have like, you know, it would have been more secret, but that we would have known that. So we couldn't do that. So we ended up just laying them in the pan and then putting the batter. Well, their legs like the, in the oven began like having like spasms and everything. And then so when the cake came out, it was just this, it looked like this like great, you know, those graveyard scenes with like the bodies coming out of the, the ground. <laughs> so it was like, it did not look edible at all. At all. So we like broke off the charred legs that were like sticking up. And we tried to like put some icing on it and we gave it to the boy, but they, they were never eating that cake. They immediately like just like threw it in the trash. <laughs> but we had no entertainment of any kind. Okay. Right. We were in this right. isolated compound. No yeah. TV, no anything. There was nothing like that back then. This is the 80s you know we had no tv no radio nothing and so we really were our own entertainment and we yeah we had a lot, lot of fun we just got up it was just like we you just it, it was fun to just act as crazy as you could just to, for entertainment you know we just did stupid stuff <laughs> all the time yeah yeah entertainment we just we did stupid Ta stuff all the time just antics just to entertain ourselves. this is like tom sawyer and tom sawyer in kenya <laughs> yeah a little bit a little bit you know so so i think that's one of the things that it kind of left me with was um just i'm a very creative person um and i just and I'm always looking for like the humor and things and just, you know, all of that. And um, yeah, yeah and you, I think you I still, just because I grew up. <laughs> you have a, a YouTube channel, right? And you, uh, sorry, we should, we should say, um, we should uh, I have so you, many you things. do some it's writing. Yep. You do some blogging <laughs> and, and some Twittering, um, but you have a YouTube channel. And um, I, I remember clicking on that um, and you know, it was you in your house and it reminded me of dorm times, you know, of just like um, doing stupid, you know, stupid skits that just crack yourself up and like, yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> like that's what it reminded me of. Yeah. 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 So I'm still doing the antics. And then when I get together with our friends, like we're just, I mean, we're just always doing ridiculous things. So it's that's pretty funny. fun. Uh, we have a YouTube star on yeah, our yeah, podcast And, and how, how would people find you, by the way? Oh, gosh. Um, so I have various things. Um, but So I have now I, I have two blogs, but I consolidate them. I repost on a, I have a sub stack now. Everything's on my actual name, Holly Berkeley Fletcher now. So Twitter, um, the sub stack, you can find the sub stack, um, the, which, although... 
I have a blog that has a bit more than just that, that has my art and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, a zebra without stripes is what it's called. That's right. Um, and then the YouTube channel is just my name, my yeah. Holly Berkeley Fletcher. So, yeah. Okay. So we, just, we got the shameless plugs, plugs out of the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I just, again, I'm still trying to entertain myself. That's yeah. what it's all about. And one of the things that I've, I've noticed is, um, you know, you were very much on campus, which is uh, for a lot of us MKs, that was very much our experience. We were sequestered, you know, we went between the dorm and campus and, you know, we go into the city, but kind of, you know, in a group of other MKs, whereas other MKs were like totally embedded um, uh, and uh, all their, all their friends were, you know, uh, nationals, uh, uh, you know, non-Americans and, yeah. or, or, you know, whatever country they were from what was your experience and with that and and what do you think about it now like what you feel yeah, like your connection yeah. is to the school that you've talked about mm -hmm, so much but mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. what was that like growing up so i definitely and this is was a hard thing for me to realize as an adult because i had this idea in my head that i was kind of like a kenyan somehow and then as i've gotten to be an adult i realized like you know what you uh you grew up in a bubble like you grew up in a fake place like it's not even a real place um it's not a real culture it's it's so highly specific like even i even talking to you know you other mks i have this sense of like oh like they can understand a little bit of it but but nobody can ever really understand rva you know like it's just you're just not gonna under and there's a kind of a snobbery about like you're just not gonna understand you know um, and yeah, so I think the problem with being, having rooting your identity in a, such a highly specific context is there's nothing to take with you when it's over, it's over, like it's over. Um, and so the grief is very, was very intense for me. Um, so in terms of my relationship with Kenya, what I'm, uh, the actual country of Kenya versus what I grew up in, you know, obviously I had some contact with it. I, I went to a Kenyan primary school and obviously I was out some with my parents in churches and things like that. You know, um, it was, you know, it's not like I didn't experience the real country at all. I would say that my when I did experience the real country, I, you know, went into the, as you said, the, the townships, uh, which baffled it. They would take, I went, they would drop like 11 year old kids in downtown Nairobi for the day. And then just see at the end of the day. Like, <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. So like 11 year old me was like around the crime wasn't as bad back then, but still like, that's just kind of bizarre to think about. Um, so, you know, and I interacted with, but I, I have to say, like, if again, if I'm honest, and I have a blog post about this, I think, I don't know if I sent it to you or not. Um, I'm just confronting the um, real snob, just condescension and bias um, I had towards people that going out into like the real Kenya was like, ugh, you know, I didn't, it was like, I didn't really want to, it, I felt uncomfortable. I mean, obviously I didn't belong, you know, obviously we stuck out everywhere we went. It was like, we were noticed and sort of, 
you know, celebrated and like the kids came running to like wave and they would want to touch your hair. And like, it was that kind of weird being center of attention in a bad way. And that was, it was unsettling. Um, and yeah, I just, I didn't like, I didn't like going out into like real Kenya. I wanted to stay in my, in my bubble. And so, and there was a lot of, um, frankly, you know, a lot of racial and socioeconomic bias that I, you know, that I, if I'm honest, that I had as a kid that now I can see and it, it's really tough to, to grapple with. Um, so yeah. And I think that's a big, honestly, I think it's hard to escape that. I think even, um, well-intentioned missionaries who try to like overcome those sort of barriers of the privilege, you know, that we come out with, and it's not just racial or socioeconomic, it's also geopolitical America. You come as an American, like you're, you come with this power, you know? Um, it's this whole power behind you, right? And it's hard to overcome that, even if you, even if you try to make that relationship, you can't, it's how the other people, it's not just how you're relating to them, it's how, how are they relating to you? And it's just hard. I think it's just hard in the, in that context to establish real egalitarian authentic relationships you know um so how are you now connecting with people yeah so as an adult i've tried to um make up for this and one of the things that i've done as an adult is oh i've studied african history and i work on africa issues so i actually have tried to become very educated about um about Africa and in Kenya in particular, but I've also um, studied Swahili and I've become like, as an adult, I've become pretty fluent in Swahili, which is, I learned it. I learned it a little, you know, I learned a lot of just words as a kid. Um, yeah. You know, not a whole lot of formal training and because Kenyans, Kenyans speak Swah English about as well as they speak Swahili. So their first language will be their tribal language. And then they'll learn um, the two official national languages are English and Swahili. Why, why learn Swahili now? That's such an interesting, you know, because I was thinking about that the other day, because the same for me, both in Sobano and Tagalog, I only learned just a lot of words. And it's because in the Philippines, people want to speak English. People want to practice mm -hmm. their yeah. English and yeah, a yeah. lot of people a lot of people speak English. And so, yeah. um, and, and I spent most of my time on a, you know, a, a Western school campus, um, not yeah. embedded, uh, uh, you know, living with, with people who are from the Philippines. So why now though? Like why take that journey? Now? Yeah. Well, I just had the opportunity. I live here in Washington and I actually, um, work in the sort of Africa space. And so, you know, there's just, there's opportunities here to learn language and it's, and, you know, I could see it wasn't, it's not really necessary for my professional life, mm -hmm. but it's a little bit of an added thing, you know, but mainly the opportunity was there. And, and, you know, that was the thing. And frankly, when I talked to, I, you know, as you know, I've talked to a lot of MKs recently and the ones that didn't learn the language 
um, all of them have pretty much expressed, it's not even regret, it's like a shame. And that's what I felt too. It's like, I was like ashamed because when people, when you would say like, oh, you know, I'm an MK and I was raised in Kenya. Like one of the first questions people ask is, oh, did you learn the language? They don't know what the language is, but they ask if you've learned the language. And I just felt so ashamed to say no. I just felt like such a fraud, you know? Like I, I didn't learn the lane, like what? That's so embarrassing, mm. you know? So I when I had the opportunity, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I'm not a natural language learner. That's not how my brain kind of functions. So it's been an effort, but I've been studying. Yeah. I'm still, I still have it. I still have lessons. And I've been at it for over a decade now. And you, you, um, you use the word shame and, and I relate to that. And I, I wanted to read this line to you one more time. I seek to cure what's deep inside, frightened of this thing that I've become. And I feel like you've had a moment to reevaluate who you were and the person, you know, the experience you thought you had, you know, in your new perspective, you, you're a different person than you thought the experience, it looks different. Um, having this much dis distance from it. And I'm wondering yeah. if that is at all connected to this need to um, really invest in, in Kenyan culture and society and learn the language and, and learn African history. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I just, you know, when I left, I felt tremendous loss and tremendous grief and um and I sort of clung to a notion that I was somehow still, you know, kind of Kenyan or belonged there. And then, you know, at a certain point, I had to realize that, you know, it just, you kind of never really did. And that made me really sad. But then it was like, you know, I can kind of make up for this, you know. Yeah. I can, um, I can do something about this now. And it's been a really beautiful experience to learn Swahili because it does take you to a different level with people. You know, it's, it's like a leveling thing. You know, one of my teachers, a Tanzanian um, young man, I've studied uh, with him in Tanzania. And then I've studied, we've kept up online. He helps me online. And he's actually in the States this year. I'm on a Fulbright scholarship. So we've seen him um, here and he's going to come visit mm. one more time before he goes back. And, you know, he's just become, you know, he's, he's, he's probably one of the closer friendships I've had. And um, it's been very, yeah, it's very meaningful. It's very leveling because then when you're, when I'm, we speak almost, unless there's someone else around when, like when he comes to visit, obviously we speak in English. So my husband can understand. Um, but otherwise we're pretty much exclusively in Swahili and it's, you know, you're, you're in the vulnerable position, you know, when you, mm -hmm. you need to learn, you need his, you need his help. And that's not as something that white Americans in Africa, that's not a position they're really in that much, you know, mm -hmm. And that's certainly not a position that I was in that much growing up there or that I saw my parents and my parents were like the God, they were like gods. That's how people treated them. 
Mm-hmm. And that's how when and then when we came to the States, that's how people treated them. They were like this, like these like superhero type people. Um, and so I that's and it's so refreshing. It's like, yeah, it's like you're actually um can then you do feel like you kind of belong, right? Yeah. When you can no, have like an actual relationship with you yeah. belong. Well the 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 title of the show is is Life Unwasted. And I feel like you are totally invest you're taking these moments from your childhood, you know, realizing that maybe they weren't what they you thought they were, but you're um investing in them and, and correcting them and healing them through this this process. And that that's amazing. And so you win, you win the show. Um, yes. Uh, this life unwasted. <laughs> right, yeah. life, yes. Yeah, you so won the season. Yeah. Life, so that's I, great. I'm oh, wondering, we, we're we here kind of at the, the end of our time, but I'm wondering if there's one last story, um, uh, just a high note, maybe maybe something you tell with your friends or you tell with your family, just a, 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 a treasured memory. Yeah. Oh, there's just, there's so many. Um, I know. Uh, <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to pick. Um, it was very special to take my kids back for the first time and to see, you know, we were at RVA for the alumni and to like see them discover the place. And, um, you know, then they were, my daughter was the same age. She was 10 when we went and I took her around and I could see her, you know, I could, that was the age I went when I went. And so that was like really affecting to kind of walk around with her you know, and realize how young she is years right? later and then to see them really um like love it you know like kind of love it or like appreciate the beauty uh the best was like they were we were walking to the rugby field for to watch the alumni rugby game and like randomly there was a chameleon crossing the road and so they found this chameleon and it was like, it was just like magic, you know, they had never seen a chameleon and then they ended up playing with this chameleon for like an hour, the poor, the poor thing. So my nephew, like he was a freshman at the time there, he like rescued the chameleon from my, my children. Um, but it's just, um, that was just so meaningful. Um, but in terms of memories there, there's just so many, I just, it's hard to pick. It's hard to pick. I think the thing about my childhood, it had some trauma in it, um, but mostly the the sadness of it is that there was so little I could keep except for these memories, you know, it all went away and it, none of it was ever mine, really. It was like a fleeting, I, I call it like an unrequited love, you know, um, where you, yeah. you have your summer or you're in you fall in love maybe you have a short little fling and then it's and then it's over and you just you can't you can't have it really um and so that that was the grief that has still stayed with me all these years you know that that's very relatable and it reminds me of at the end of our high school, um you know we had our big high school party and it was at the top of Robinson's Galleria um, and we kind of rented out the top floor of this hotel and throughout the night, everyone would at the, you know, when it was time for them to go catch their airplane, they would get in the elevator and the doors would close. And that was yes. it. That was the end, yeah. you know, yeah. and and then and now we're reconnecting, you know, uh, 20 years later. 
Um, and it's been really, really healing, but it sounds like, um, you know, there was like a, just a full stop and that in and of itself is part of, uh, the trauma that, um, that comes with moving okay. around a lot, uh, especially when you, uh, have such a specific experience. Um, yeah, Holly, it's been amazing. We, oh, thank you. I love I talking know, to you before. This, so yeah. <laughs> This hour I flew by that I, we did. So yes, um, before. Yeah. So I knew I'd love talking to you again. And Q is cumin. It's, it's so nice to meet you um, on here as well. Thank you for awesome. coming on and relating to us your breathtaking and beautiful undertakings in Africa. There yeah. we go with the song, with the outro. Call to action, everyone. Go to Kenya when you have the chance. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Learn Swahili. Gorgeous. Sounds like a gorgeous country. Yes, learn Swahili. I'm a great safari driver I can hook you up with. Ooh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our, our, awesome, Holly. our episode today is sponsored by uh, the generous safari driver in yeah. Sub-Sahara. <laughs> yep. We, we get affiliate marketing um, uh, for this, for sure. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but <laughs> all right. Take us out, Q. All right. And guys, see us out on the count of three. One, two, three. Go, Go Vanguard. Vanguard.